This episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp, gluten-free fruit and nut crackers made with simple and natural ingredients. Learn more at mainecrisp.com. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary human who inspires me. And today, I have someone who has inspired me through art and snacks, and the art of snacking. Today, my guest is Claire Olshan. Claire, welcome. I'm so excited to talk to you about Surrealism, Dada Daily, your current business, and a little bit about how you got here. Hi, Dana. I'm so excited to talk about all the things I love. Well, let's like roll back a little bit because all the things you love today, which include art and food and style and entertaining, they seem like they started really early with you. Like whenever I hear that someone traded off bread for seaweed when they're a little kid as a wrapper for tuna, I'm like, oh, they're my kind of person. So like what kind of young eater were you? I would say I was a very curious child. I remember being very young, like my fourth or fifth birthday, putting together like a loop bag for all my friends and saying, like, very matter-of-factly, everything has to be green. Everything has to be chocolate. Everything has, like, I was just very in tune to what I loved. And what I loved, I just knew. I just, you know, saw the color green and said, Mom, that's my favorite color. I want to wear it every day. I want to eat it. I want to do, like, I was, I'm a very all-or-nothing type of person. So my health habits happened because one, I just always loved food, but I did have a very, very sensitive system um, since I was born. I couldn't breastfeed. I was highly lactose intolerant. And as a kid, you know, you go to birthday parties, you know, pizza and ice cream, pizza, ice cream, pizza, ice cream, that's game plan. And it was really, really sad because I would eat it anyway. And then it would kill me. So I was very aware at a very young age when I ate food that made me feel terrible. And then when I ate food that made me feel good. Um, and so that was just kind of like just learning from, from life. And as I said, I, I couldn't have dairy. So I'd always have to get an alternative milk and alternative milks were not cool. And so there was only kind of one store to go to. First was Rice Dream. And then I remember the guy who owned the store was like, no, we have soy milk now. And I was like, what? Okay, I'll try it. And it tastes better than the Rice Dream. And just that little moment of walking to the health food store, picking up the milk, looking around, asking questions, just opened up my eyes to just having a lot of fun with health food. The idea of having fun like a kid in a candy shop, except it's kid in a health food shop, really makes me smile because of course I can imagine what was there, things that were very like earthy hippie granola, which doesn't seem your vibe at all. Did you come up with like crazy fun combinations when you were a kid or did did that wait till later? Oh, I was coming up with wild things when I was a kid. But I also like, for me, if we want to think about like Willy Wonka and like Alice in Wonderland and the vibes that I throw out in the world now, like I remember that I'm having like turkey that wasn't turkey, turkey without meat. And I was like, what is turkey without meat? Where it's like chicken Parmesan, but there's no Parmesan and there's no chicken in there. I mean, that's actually funny to think about um, because of the touchstone now of Dada Daily being surreal. And it is like, why are they calling these things turkey if there's no turkey in it? Like, why, why, why? It's like magic. Like I was a little kid. I was like, this is like a magic trick. And then I also, I used to take like vegan protein powder and put it in my ice cream, like vanilla or chocolate protein powder. And my mother thought I was 
legitimately crazy. And I would just look at her and be like, why wouldn't we put protein in our ice cream? And she's like, because you just don't. You're supposed to put sprinkles on your ice cream, not protein powder. And like, I just overthought, I would guess, I guess I could say it. And I would just have fun with health food. But that being said, it was like a very private part of my life. I didn't expose it out in the world. I knew that that was like weird. And my brother made me very aware that this was a strange side of me that I should never tell anybody about. So I would just kind of do this all in my house, in my kitchen growing up. So you had like reverse food shame, you know, now people are food shamed for like eating too much and eating too much fat and you're food shamed like the other direction. Right. Like don't tell anyone you're too healthy. Like my, I, my brother just used to make fun of everything I did. He was, you know, four years older than I was and loved, you know, mac and cheese out of a box. So Dada is actually the first time I ever really went out in the world to like scream from the rooftops that I loved health and wellness and, and that I've been doing this for, for a very long time. You studied art, you worked in art galleries. What drew you to the arts and what part of that have you held on to for your current life? I think I've always really aligned my brain with artists. I was curious and I was aware of what people were wearing, what was on my body, what I would listen to. Um, I think I always was like wanted to be older than I was. And so I grew up on 79th between Madison and 5th. So I was in the heart of museums and New York and its finest magical moments. I just always loved aesthetics. I loved beautiful buildings and beautiful flowers and beautiful art and clothing. And I think as I got older, I was just really focused on diving into those worlds and just making me that my livelihood, even though I didn't pick the right ones, or maybe I picked the right ones at the right times. But, you know, when I did jump into art, it had an expiration date. And then I jumped into fashion and that had an expiration date. And now I would say I'm more in the food entertaining realm. And this one feels kind of the most right. I love the idea of a profession or an interest with an expiration date. You went into art thinking perhaps that it would be the thing that carried you through. What was the process of sort of figuring out, you know what, this isn't for me, and then like making another choice? Because sometimes that is just so incredibly intimidating and you don't really know how to figure out what to, what to do next. I totally agree. And, you know, as I said, I, I loved art. And so I went to NYU because I said, I, I want to go to the best fine arts school in the country um, and get the best art historical, you know, education. And I loved learning about it. And I think what people get confused about is when you love learning about something, it does not translate necessarily into you love making money from it and you love creating a business from it. And I think, you know, hobbies and passions and livelihoods they get jumbled all in one place and everyone says you should like love what you do and you should love what you do but sometimes things are just meant to be hobbies and so I loved learning about art I loved te like teaching other people I loved take pe taking people to museums and I thought that translated into oh I, I'm going to be um, an art dealer like I'm going to sell it and that transactional quality actually ruined kind of the magic for me why was that? Like, what What is it that, like, when you add commerce to art, becomes less appealing? I don't mean in a judgmental way. I mean, I'm just curious because that was part of the journey of yours to say, like, it's not it's not right for me. Well, the art world for me was was very like calculated, and it wasn't free. You know, I didn't feel freedom in it. I felt like everything I did 
Um, I had to think about, I had to overthink about who I was selling a piece to. Did I sell it in front of this other person? Did I do the right thing? I was overthinking about something that usually made me feel really free and, and alive. And I think that like that life, that, that feeling of standing in front of a, you know, a Jackson Pollock or standing in front of a painting and just feeling the energy. I didn't feel that when I was trying to sell, I felt like almost like I was back in school and I had to like, get this done. And I, it was more, more of a different part of my brain that um, wasn't meshing well with the initial reason why I got into it in the first place. Did you find that you were actually not a great salesperson? Like, I was terrible. Was that, you were like, terrible. Horrific. <laughs> I worked for this guy who owned a gallery. I was the director. And I would spend like an hour with someone in the gallery and he'd come and they would leave and they'd be like, oh my God, we had the most fabulous time. And then he'd be like, okay, which one are they going to get? I was like, oh, I don't know. I, I didn't even try. <laughs> He's like, what? I was like, yeah, you know, I didn't really want to bring it up. We were having like such a good conversation. And he's like, you are the worst salesperson ever. But funny enough, I was like a phenomenal salesperson when it came to my next job. Um, so it wasn't that I was the worst salesperson. It just, as I said, it just wasn't the right fit. So I love the story that I've read. I just want everybody to hear it from you about um, you and your dad, who was also a retailer and, uh, you know, trying to figure out what to do next at the same time, which I feel like my kids have witnessed that with me. Um, although like the ages are slightly off, but you know, my college age daughter saying like, I'm not really sure what I'm going to do. And I'm like, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. Um, so when I read that about you and your dad, I'm like, I just need to hear more about this. My dad to me was always, you know, I was like a little daddy's girl. He was always like my hero. And I never really knew him as a, as a person. I knew him as a dad, as a fixes everything, does everything, Herculean kind of guy. And I remember there was a point in my life. I remember there was a restaurant on 69th Street called Le Charlot, and we we're sitting there. And I remember just feeling so lost. And for some reason, he decided to, you know, take the, the Superman cloak off. And he's like, I don't know what I'm doing either. And I was like, what? No, 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 no. You, you can't be, you can't say that. You're not allowed. You're my dad. He's like, no, like, I don't know where I'm, what I'm doing next. Like, I, I need to figure it out. I was like, you know, like I have the rest of my life to figure out. I'm like, I've got a lot. I need to do this now. He's like, no, I need to do this now. And like, it was this almost like cinematic, like back and forth that forced us to kind of come together with this idea and, and create it together, which it's really unique. I realized to create something with your dad. It's not unique to work for your dad and, you know, go into a business that he created, but to, to create something together, um, I think it was very special and very different and very difficult, like emotionally insane. And do you think that he said to you, like at that time, you know, I'm trying to figure it out, hoping that you would say, me too, let's do something together? Or do you think he was just, you know, as you say, taking off the Superman cloak and with no sort of intention there. You know, I think he's, I think a dream for a parent is to spend every day with their kid, especially when their kid is like out of the house and you're losing their grasp on them. And then the kid comes back and it's like, let's do something together. I think there's like, you know, not every parent has that, but I think there probably is a little bit of him that was like, Ooh, maybe there's a chance that like I could see her every day. I mean, I um, also had a father who I adored and, you know, we talked every once in a while about doing something together, like do like a photo gallery or 
and it, it never came to pass. And I don't feel like it was ever very real, but that notion of doing something with my dad always was like, God, that'd be so amazing. I mean, for sort of the same reverse reason, like I'd get to see him every day. That'd be so fun. Um, but then there's the hard parts, right? So well, why don't you describe what five story was, what you, what you created, which was a original idea and the balls it took to, Go out there and do it. Well, so one, I'm going to give my dad the credit in the sense that he made it happen. I had it like a vision and I said, okay, so once, you know, he planted this seed and like he turned me into a monster. I was like, I have a real vision for the Upper East Side, which is where I was born and where I was raised. And it's hard to think of it now. Times are very different. Like this is like after 2008 and like New York was just like in a weird place. And if you went to the Upper East Side, it was kind of like a wasteland. There was like a lot of empty, vacant spaces. And so the store that I had like envisioned was, you know, it wasn't a transactional store. I said, I want seating in every room because I had walked up and down Madison. I realized that there was no chairs in stores because nobody wanted you to hang out there. They wanted you to come in. They wanted you to buy something and they wanted you to leave. And I was like, no, no, I want you to come in. I want you to tell me a story about where, what you're looking for. I want us to write the story together and I want to create a relationship with you. And then I wanted you to leave and think about like me and the store and our, and our moment together every single time you open your closet. That's what we set out to do. We set out to just, you know, create stories with customers and just help them. I, I'm also, in, I'm, I'm intrigued by your notion of being anti-trend and yet somehow you're you're always quite on trend. Like what, what are your thoughts about the importance or role of trends? The authenticity is what creates the uniqueness of, of something because there's only one you and there's only, your brain is the only one on this earth. So if you're really tapped into what you see, what you want, then uniqueness at the end of the day is trendy and is special. And it at least gets eyeballs. You know, you show something to someone that they haven't seen before or you, you know, use a voice that people have not heard before, they're going to listen. They might not like it, but they're going to listen. So I don't really love the word trendy, but I do find that there is always going to be an audience when you're truly yourself. Well, with that thought, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll talk about motherhood and work and pregnancy and Dada food. So stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Maine Crisp, gluten-free fruit and nut crackers made with simple, natural ingredients. It all began with buckwheat. I am obsessed with buckwheat because my husband, Barkley, is now gluten-free, but buckwheat is the way to go. The company's founders, Karen and Steve Getz, added nuts and seeds and dried fruits and baked them into this incredibly delicious, easy-to-enjoy crisp. Their friends loved them, their family loved them, everyone craved them. Why? Because they've got this unexpected flavor and chewy meets crispy texture. They're a family-owned and operated business and they work with their local community and farmers to celebrate everything that has to do with Maine. And as you guys all know, I'm obsessed with Maine. So when they're thinking about what to make with these crisps, it's their tartary buckwheat with pure maple syrup, they were thinking about health and flavor that they wanted everyone to share and enjoy. Because snack time is your time, you gotta check out these crisps. 
Learn more at maincrisp.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm Dana Cowan. My guest today is Claire Olshan, who has walked us through this incredible journey that she's had from being a student and appreciator of art to working in the art business to creating a business with her dad. And you've been hatching this idea of Dada. So I'd love you to tell everybody about Dada and Decadent Snacks. Sure. Okay. So we talked a little bit about my healthy, crazy, weird habits. Um, I had that side to myself that always felt very like restrictive and minimal and clean and like, you know, five ingredients. Like it was just this like clean little world. And then I had this other side of me that was like a maximalist, like an Alice in Wonderland, surrealist, free, just kooky, crazy, come to my house for dinner, drink too much, eat too much, droop on the floor, you know, like melted candles everywhere. So if you think of these two worlds, they're like kind of the opposite, but they lived inside me and I, they were always just parallel to each other. And I just was like, I want to bind them together. And maybe it was just kind of like a, like a cathartic thing. I was like, I want this, like almost like a Veruca salt, like, no, I want it right now. But I also was like, if you ever, and going back to that authenticity comment, like if you can really be true to yourself or say that like you have an idea of something that has not been done before, like that really excited me. Like I couldn't quiet that idea. So that's kind of how it was birthed. My first foot forward was with health food and snacking. But what I realized a little later into, you know, I'd say a year into, into Dada is that it's not a food brand. It's the beautiful marriage of these two components. So it's, it's an entertaining brand. And this is actually like a really important, like light bulb moment I had is when someone said the word entertaining, I was like, Ooh, entertaining. That sounds very like pigeonholed 1950s woman. And I'm not an, and then I was like obsessed with the word. I was like, wait, 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 wait. Entertaining actually has two definitions. It's this idea of entertaining, you know, you invite people over and you serve them. But then there's this idea of entertaining where you're like, you know, but up, but up, but but like you're like, and like an entertainer, people are passive and they're watching you and you are, you know, being your truest self and creating joy in them. And I was like, wait, I'm obsessed with this word. And then that word was the definition of data. They say like, let us entertain you. We want to be the tool that lets you kind of have that power. Uh, by the way, when, when I just said the 1950s housewife, I used to think of it as like a, a sad woman. And now I'm like obsessed with her. I was like, oh my God, wait, no, she was the most empowered woman. She curated what you ate, what you drank, what you saw, what you did. She, you know, she was a maestro of a moment and she was awesome. And so this whole kind of upside down re- imagination of that world and the definition of the word um, has kind of created what data is right now. I do think, you know, in some ways it is turning upside down um, the reality because the, the woman who was doing everything, you know, had no help, was sort of disregarded and it was that unpaid job, right? Like take care of your husband, take care of the chores, take care of the children, take care of the entertaining. Um, but now we can find a lot more joy 
and don't have to feel sort of um, like shackled to the notion of entertaining. And it can be so much fun. Like the there's a liberation that you bring to it that perhaps wasn't felt in the 50s, but liberation and entertainment seem like such great bedfellows. And that's kind of the thread with the five stories, you know, the woman would come into five story and be like, I'm so stressed out. I have this event. I have this thing. I don't know what to wear. I'm just going to be like, I hate my arms. And, and like, at the end of the day, like, I was like, no, 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 let's redo this. This is so fun. This is so fun. We're going to cover up those arms. If you don't like them, we're going to put the ear. Like, it was just like, let's make this easy and fun. And with Dada, you know, a lot of people are like, I want to have people over, but I like, don't know what to serve. And like, what do I serve it in? I don't have nice things. And like, or just, you know, on the flip side, I have so many things, but I'm so bored of them. And like, we're just like, no, just like, come to us, buy the bowl, buy the snacks. Don't overthink it. Have fun with it. Like you, like use us as tools. We're slowly building out those teaching components on our social media and our blog of like, what are your hacks? What are these like tiny little moments that we can give you to empower you um, and, and, you know, really make you feel great about snacking, about eating, about entertaining, about being decadent on a daily basis and redefining that word decadence, which could be seen as a bad thing, but I see it as a great thing. Yeah, I, I, you talk about having like rituals of decadence, which I just, I love those words thrown together. Did you have someone work on the brand development with you? Or this is the best story. This is really my best story. I had a phenomenal woman work on it. I worked on it with her like religiously. And when the final product came, I had this like lump in my throat and my stomach and it was beautiful, but it was wrong. This is actually when I realized I was like very good at branding. I was like, no, this is not it. And, and I needed to see someone else hand me their version of it for me to realize what I wanted. I don't want to talk, even talk about what I paid for it, but I took my camera and I started shooting my own photography. I did my own fonts. I like drew, I, I went to like mood fabrics. I bought a bunch of velvet. I, I mean, if I sent you pictures of how I made the packaging for all our products, you would like cry of laughter. It's like me at my desk with like a strip of velvet held up by like a water bottle. And like, I would like go and I don't even want to say this, but like I would go and buy like really fine China and I would like take a picture and then I put it back in the box and I would return it. And then I just started doing it on my, on my own. And not only did it feel so right, it was like so incredible to actually create. Because with Five Story, I had this feeling, these, this energetic feeling of like seeing other people create and being the middleman. As I said about my friends and their designs. And their, but for once, I was creating. Like there was nothing. And then there was something. And that to me was like this like almost orgasmic moment where I'm like, whoa, like I think I'm really like, this is what I, this, that's why I said like there was an expiration date on the other two businesses, but this one involves feelings that I never had before. One of the, th the first way that I found you, I think actually was through like the candles, which is the, the legs and the hands. So the surrealists were really interested in body parts and it seems like you've been interested in body parts your whole life. I'm just Curious to like learn a little bit more about that. I think it has a lot to do with like health and, and, and food and my relationship to food. You know, like many young girls, like I, I did have a few years where maybe like I felt fat and I would like, 
I just like, I've had this like weird relationship with like body parts and like, I love body parts and art and like the over-sexualization of women and the voyeur. And like, I've always been really, really obsessed with it when it came to our history, when it came to myself um, and finding that healthy space of like loving bodies and like loving curves and loving like the sensual, sexual, but also just like raw, organic, real nature of a body. Does it go deeper than that? I don't know. That actually sounds pretty deep, but like, I just love it. Like, I just love it. I think it's like everyone has a body. Not everyone's body is the same, but everyone has a relationship to their body. And I love just kind of exposing moments where you wouldn't think of a body part hanging out in the middle of a table, you know? Um, you wouldn't think about eating a boob made out of chocolate. The most exciting parts in life are when you when you find something unexpected and you have to rethink them a little bit. So I think Dada's like always trying to like have you rethink something a little bit. It seems like some of your partnerships are so brilliant and it has to do with a lot of the friendships that you've cultivated. There's one partnership in particular, which was your launch partnership with uh, Laura Kim, where she curated from Regalis. And I'm obsessed with the food of Regalis. It's just so, so great. And I just would love to hear about how you choose the partnerships and then how you think about like outside food in combination with yours and what partnerships are coming up. Yeah, I'm I'm a very collaborative, spirited person. Um, I don't believe in competition. Seeing someone something someone else is doing either like inspires you, makes you work harder, makes you want to work with them. And so the idea first initiated where we were launching an entertaining board because it just kind of, you know, that felt like the next step for us. And I was like, it would be so obvious to just put Dada on an entertaining board, but like, why don't we bring in all these people that we think are great? And then I was like, that feels a little self-indulgent. Like, I love this and I love this. And this is about me, 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 me. So I was like, okay, let's, let's bring someone else in. And so Laura has been a really good friend of mine for a very long time. She is the lead designer of um, Oscar de la Renta, but she also has her own brand called Monse. We were the first retailer of Monse Five Story. And so I've known her forever. And she is a prolific cook. I mean, she's a chef in my eyes. She's doing this thing, which is, you know, it's on a, it's a big trend. It has a lot to do with Instagram where like art and food are, you know, kind of co-mingling where you're creating really gourmet, delicious food, but you're doing it in a way that's really beautiful. Um, her Instagram handle is Toki Bun Bun, if anyone wants to go look her up. And so I like went to her and I was like, let's create a scenario. You invite your favorite people over. They're at your house. You're all sitting on the floor. You bring out the entertaining board. What is on the entertaining board? And so she said something like regalis. She brought up regalis. I was like, oh my God, have we never spoken about? We love regalis. So I was like, okay, let's just call them. And she's like, okay, who do we call? I was like, I don't know. Let's just like, you know, call the number at the bottom of the website and see if anyone picks up. And I'm not joking. That's basically what we did. And we're like, do you like Laura, pick your favorite items from them that uh, you would use on a board. And she did. And we put them on the board. And the next thing you know, like, bing, bam, boom. That was our first entertaining board. And then it was so fun. And it was so successful that we decided to do it again. And so our uh, second curator was this woman, uh, Jill Burrow, who is 
breathtaking. She makes you like sit down when you see what she's concepted. She's a set designer, but she works mostly with food. Again, her Instagram handle is Jill underscore Burrow, B-U-R-R-O-W. And she's just so creative that like, I just, I find her to be like a library. And so she curated this, our second board. Um, our third board is going to be curated by um, Devon Francis. Um, his Instagram handle is Tuna Turner. Amazing guy. Love him again. I love his energy. I love what he puts out in the world. So he's our fourth. And then we have Rafa uh, Prieto as our fifth, who will be launching in September. He has a chocolate brand called Kasabowski's. Do you have co-packers? Like, how do you develop the recipes for your products? Like, where does your chocolate come from? I know you're obviously all about clean labels, clean supply chains. It's very, very difficult. This company is like insanely difficult and insanely complex because our standards for manufacturing are really high. Our ingredients are really high. So basically every single product we make is made by somebody different. So our food is made in, in America. So our dehydrated vegetables are made in um, Ohio. Our chocolate is made in Chicago. Our nut mix is made in Brooklyn. And then all of our lifestyle is made overseas, uh, Vietnam, Turkey, China. I definitely didn't do this simply. No, no, that's really, <laughs> that does not make it easy for you for so many reasons. But I know that you also collaborated with an amazing woman woodworker, and I'm always looking to champion women artisans. Can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah. So uh, Melanie Abrantes, she's from uh, Santa Barbara. And it's actually not easy to find a woman woodworker. Um, And we wanted to make this entertaining board and we just started scouring the country. Like a lot of these entertaining wood boards are just wood slabs. There's like, there's no femininity in them. And so she was really unique. We, I found her on Instagram and I realized there was like a real feminine, masculine balance. because She's obviously working with these very like, you know, masculine materials. And, um, and we just approached her and I said, I have this idea. I want to do something super weird and different. Um, and I actually said to her, I was like, I like this one. She had this like candy jar type of piece. And I'm like, like, let's work off of this. Like, let's make like a, bored out of this. And I didn't have to talk too much. And she was like, I totally get it. It was a very easy thing to work with her. Um, I would say sourcing the materials was nearly impossible. Getting materials these days is hard. Every, to be honest, everything is hard right now. I mean, anything in, in the supply chain, because the supply chains are so broken and, and then prices are going up. So it's really, uh, it's challenging what you pass along to the, to your customer. And I think that restaurants and food and retail will certainly be reshaped by scarcity and uh, scarcity of laborers, scarcity of supply. Um, we'll see like where that leads us. So um, you launched um, Adata and then, you know, and, and sold Five Story and then the pandemic came and your the time for you during the pandemic was incredibly complex because of your personal life and your business life. So you now have a second child and that story is a little more complicated. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Um, So January, 2020, um, I felt like something was weird. Called my gynecologist. I was like, something's weird. And this goes back to the meditation, the intuitive nature being authentic with myself. And she was like, Oh, she's like, Oh, I think you're miscarrying your levels are coming off pregnant, but 
you know, there's no baby in your uterus. And I was like, that's weird. Okay, maybe I'm miscarrying. Went home that night and was like, nope, this does not feel right. Does not. And so I went back and um, ended up going to a few, another doctor the next day. And that next day, like never ended up going home. I had an ectopic pregnancy. They had to remove a fallopian tube. It's actually not so crazy. You're, you have to be so thankful that you catch these things because if an ectopic, you know, ruptures, you only have a certain amount of time to live. But if you catch it early, it's a 20 minute procedure. They remove a fallopian tube. Thank God. God made us with two. You can have babies again. All good. Um, what happened was during my surgery, it was like a one in a 10,000th chance that, you know, they ruptured something, they ruptured an artery and it went from a 20 minute procedure to a two and a half hours procedure. You know, the head of vascular surgery had to come in, open me up from my rib to my pelvis and find where I was bleeding and then repair it. And anyway, you, you can understand that was pretty traumatic. And like you wake up when you think you were under for 20 minutes and you look down and you're just like, what just happened? So very bizarre timing. It all happened on Valentine's Day 2020. And um, it was actually a very, very special time. Um, as you can tell by this whole story, I just have been doing a lot of my life. You know, I had this company and I had a baby and I got married and then I opened another company and this and that. And while I did a lot of, you know, work with meditation in the sense that like I slowed myself down in moments, I never really slowed myself down. And so I was now in the hospital for a week alone. I had no, like I, the first time in a long time where I like didn't have to like run to my child at 6 a.m. Um, like I just was very grateful. Let's just leave it at that to be alive for one and to just have what I had. And I came out of it like not being like, oh, I'm so happy that this is tragic thing happened, not tragic, but this crazy thing happened to me, but, but really kind of appreciating um, my life and, and why it happened and maybe everything happens for a reason. But, you know, didn't have that much time of that because COVID happened like four seconds later. And so I did go into COVID with this, like, with this like really nice tool belt of like perspective, which allowed me to handle COVID pretty well. And um, I then got pregnant again, which was really scary because I had just had my, you know, stomach cut open and all and like every night I'd be like, oh my God, like it's getting bigger. But like, it was just like, and it was very painful because the scar was like stretching. And so I think the, the, um, the anxiety from all of that, um, I ended up miscarrying in about eight weeks and I had this tool belt, let's just say. And so I was able to really handle that. And obviously it was extremely emotional, but like I was able to handle it, I think, in a much strong, from a much stronger position. And I was like, I had to like work on it. Like I didn't have distraction. It was uh, April, 2020. So like I was out of the city with my, just my husband and my son and just had to kind of work through it. And what nobody tells you, and then the funniest thing is then I said to my husband, I'm like, okay, I need a freaking break. I was like, I need no more surgeries, no more babies. This pandemic needs to be over. Let's just like, have a really like nice summer. And then what nobody tells you is that after a miscarriage, you're extremely fertile. So two weeks later, got pregnant again um, and had no idea and then um, found out. And now I have like my, the most delicious little human in the whole wide world. And her name is Colette. Colette. Oh my goodness. What an extraordinary 
story and also so much gratitude, but such a lot to go through. And something that I'm always curious about is this notion of doing the work. You know, it's it's a phrase, it's a very common phrase, but inside of it, I feel like that's a little bit of a, a black box that I'm interested in opening because I think people want to do the work, but they don't even know like what, I mean, meditation is a piece, was a big piece of it for you. But I mean, for me, doing the work involves like drawing out ideas about challenges that I'm having in illustration because it helps me process and think through both the like what the pain point is, but also what a solution could be. But when you say doing the work, like what does that actually mean to you? So there's there are two things that really helped me and that kind of changed me, I would say. One was that I went to go see someone and talk to them and they weren't like a psychiatrist or a therapist. They, she was technically an energy healer, but it was a therapy session in, in its nature. I just really liked her because she could call bullshit. You know, she like after a few sessions, she gets your energy so much that she could just be like, that's not what you really are saying, or that's not what you really want, or that's not, your, you're not being truthful. So I did work with her every other week. I spent an hour and a half with her just taking myself apart a little bit and trying to put it back together in a, in a, in a better way. Um, and then I started writing, which is funny because I say that now very flippantly, but like, I used to like walk by, you know, like McNally Jackson and like these stores that sold like notebooks. And I'd be like, oh my God, I want to buy a notebook and write. And I would, I, I think I must have bought like 10 notebooks and like a beautiful pen, but it could never, I couldn't write. There was like a block. And I think it's because I always thought, and this is kind of like a metaphor for like anything in life. Like I always thought like I had to sit and write, you know, I had to write pages. And then this guy, this very special guy in my life, he's actually a friend of my husband. He bought me this thing called the five minute journal and it changed my life. It's every page is a different day. And it asks you three questions. I haven't actually, I, I finished mine like a year ago and I haven't started again. Um, it asks you questions like, um, what would make today great? What are you grateful for? You know, and then that's the morning questions and the night questions, you know, what could you have done better or name three things. And and, they, and this, the lines are really short, so you can't write a lot. And so I would, I said to myself, I'm like, oh, I can do this. You know, this is easy. This is like, you know, a addition and subtraction problem when it comes to like writing. And so I started there and then I found myself like trying to write down like the sides and in the corners and the notes and I was like overwriting and I'm like, okay, you know what? At some point I can take one of these 10 gorgeous notebooks out of the drawer and start like actually writing. And, and it segued me into writing. Um, and that helped me. That was a place where I could be very truthful and, and just work through things. Um, and again, I don't sit and I don't write 20 pages a day. Sometimes I write three words. Sometimes I just write like, like something that's making me so angry, but there's something very, very unique about the like metaphysical, tangible, visual, emotional experience of just like feeling, seeing, writing the words, seeing the words, um, and then just like existing in the world. And so those two things in a combination kind of, helped me do the work, as we say. I love that because it's so specific and it's something that anybody can do. They can do it like if they buy a journal that has that or they can really do the questions for themselves. I, I, this is my go-to gift. 
for like anyone going through things. You buy it on Amazon, just type in five minute journal. I think I have like 12 of them in my closet. Amazing. Um, what's your go-to baby gift? So because I work a lot with like illustrators and artists for Dada, I have just like a real heavy bench of artists um, that always need work. And so depending on the person's like aesthetic, I sometimes just make them like, like a gorgeous like illustration of the name. And I like to incorporate like lots of parts of them into it. And so that's really easy to do, by the way. You can like go on Instagram and DM any illustrator and just say like, hey, this is my budget. Could you do something for me? And it's like the nicest gift. So one I go to is this girl. Her name is Leah Burke. So it's L-I-A-B-U-R-K-E. Uh, she's an amazing illustrator. I love that. Okay. So your who's your favorite surrealist? Yeah. Dorothy Tanning. She was married to uh, Man Ray at one point. Um, a Man Ray is definitely one of my favorite surrealists. Um, I, when I was young, obviously, I was very into Salvador Dali. I don't necessarily love him the most right now, but I have a real true kind of love for him. I love like Picabia. And then I think Duchamp is the, like the father of contemporary art. So for me on a conceptual aesthetic level, like he's just phenomenal and has catapulted art in a direction that could have never gotten to without him. Well, it's been, I mean, I could honestly talk to you forever and I'm so inspired by uh, you know, the Dada world of entertaining and the way that it intersects art and food and fun and that it comes from such an authentic place inside of you that nobody else could have done it. You know, nobody else could have landed in the exact place that you are. And so it's very special and I'm really happy to like get inside of that world for a little while. So thank you for joining me on Speaking Broadly. I'll be for listening. Thanks for listening to this conversation with an extraordinary, inspiring human. And I'll be back again next week. Have a great week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. And you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends. And please, join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.